Well, good morning, Radiant. Uh, just what a delight to be with you and uh, sing, man, truths of those songs. Uh, boy, Lord, more of that, right? Uh, more of that. Hey, we are in uh, week three of our series through Second Samuel. And so I thought it was fitting being that it's week three, we like cover like, I don't know, three chapters. So here we go, three chapters. Know this, we're not going to read all three of them. I'm going to summarize a good bit of it, so it's okay. Uh, we'll, we'll make our way through, but uh, um, we're going to dive into three chapters today. One might be thinking after 1 Samuel, when we studied that before the summer, is that, you know, after all of the David being raised through adversity, you come into 2 Samuel and you might think that it's like, hey, no more pain, no more tears, uh, no more crying, uh, none of that, no more adversity. Um, actually, that's not the case. Um, kind of one of the pieces of news on that is, is that that whole scene, the no more pain, no more tears, no more death, no more uh, adversity, uh, that's Revelation 21 and 22 yet to come. Uh, we don't live there yet. And so one of the things about it where we're like, oh, really, adversity? Oh, man, I thought I lived my life to get out of adversity. No, here, here's the deal of it all. We're living our lives in this time of redemptive history to glorify God in and through adversity for his glory and for our good. And there is coming one day a time where there will be no more adversity. And it's kind of like as time goes on, the older I get, I'm like, Come on, Lord, like to the program, that program would be a good thing. But until then, uh, we are here and we are learning a lot about what it means to be a people who live in adversity. And David and the gospel, or not the gospels, but the uh, uh, texts of First Samuel and Second Samuel are helping that. Uh, but in that, uh, just with what I just said, there's something important to know. And I think right now is the time as we get moving into 2 Samuel that it's important to put on the table and that really the story isn't about David. It's really not about David. In fact, I want to bring a quote here from my favorite Old Testament commentator, Dale, Dale Ralph Davis. He says of 2 Samuel, he says this, this, 2 Samuel, is not about David. It is not even about covenant kings. It is about a covenant God who makes covenant promises to a covenant king through whom he will preserve his covenant people. There's a lot of covenant words in there. And I just want for you theologians, he is not referring, and here I'm not referring, to a theological construct. We're not talking about covenant reform theology versus dispensational theology, okay, for you theologians. We're talking about the very intrinsic nature of God. Friends, God, the Godhead, covenants itself. It agrees and it is done. When it says what it says, when God declares what he declares, it is written and it will be done. And that fact about the intrinsic nature of our God being a covenanting God brings crazy hope for you and me today. 
And I pray we see some of that in our text today. God is a covenanting God. And there's something about that that actually bothers us. Like with David. I mean, David. David, uh, yeah, by the end of his life, we cannot say that he was the perfect example of faithful fidelity to the Lord. I mean, come on. The guy committed adultery. The guy murdered. The dude lied about it. And I think we could even say David probably wasn't really necessarily the greatest dad. And yet, Scripture uses his name as a title for the coming Savior. The son of David. The son of Abraham. And Scripture even makes reference to David as a man after God's own heart. And there's something about that that bothers us, isn't there? I mean, come on. Uh, Let me put it in real terms that you and I are thinking it as. David, come on. David didn't earn that. And you are right. It's called, even in the Old Testament, here this covenant term, New Testament term, would be grace. And God, ever since Bethlehem, when saying, you, I'm going to put you as king, you're going to be my man, it wasn't because David earned it then. And it was never because David earned it at any time. It was because God covenanted himself and his word to people. And if you know Christ as your savior, you have been a recipient of the covenanting work of God. So hold that thought. Let's work through three chapters. Uh, The real story is not about David. Uh, Let's work this out. 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2. And it begins with this. The seats are filled. The seats are filled. You can see right behind me a a map, of satellite map of the region of of the Middle East, Israel, all these territories. I've kind of got them outlined there just roughly uh, where at this time, where there are two kingdoms that are going on. There's the kingdom of Judah and there's the kingdom of Israel or the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Uh, we're going to be seeing David is going to be sitting in the, the, as the king of Judah. We're going to be seeing another dude is seated as the king of the house of Israel. Let's watch this unfold. Let's kind of lean into this. I will read uh, some of the beginning of chapter 2, and then I'll highlight some summary things. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. After this, after what? After chapter 1. Yeah, that's right. Chapter 2 follows chapter 1. And in chapter 1, Uh, The Amalekite showed up, keep that in mind, I'm going to refer back to him a little later. The Amalekite shows up trying to uh, maneuver his way, Lamborghini his way into power quickly, thinking that David would kind of be that way as well. And then we had last Sunday this lament of David. Oh, uh, friend just made note, man, there's been a lot to lament over in our world today as well. And David laments, and here we are after this. David inquired of the Lord, 
Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And the Lord said, to Hebron. So David went up there. Oh, and his two wives, Ahi and Abi. Verse 3, and David brought up his men who were with him as well, everyone with his household. So everybody that was in Ziklag is now moving over to Hebron. They've loaded the moving bus. I'm sure they had uh, semi-trucks and all that back then. And they've all moved over. They're now in the town of Hebron. Verse 4, and the men of Judah came and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. What God said back some nearly 10, 13, whatever number of years earlier back in Bethlehem, God is now beginning to put in place. What God has said he will do, he will do. I want to note one thing here because I think it shines here in just a couple verses later is that David is installed as king over the house of Judah and it notes that clearly that the men of Israel or of Judah, they install him. It's a leadership community. There's a plurality. Hey friends, uh, leadership and all, we were designed to live in community. We were designed to do life in plurality. Proverbs 18.1, whoever isolates himself or herself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. If you're a loner, you need to memorize that verse, Proverbs 18.1, because you're in trouble. If you are a loner, doing life all by yourself, you have the tendency to break out of all sound judgment. Why? Because you are judge, jury, and all. And it is a call for that. And I just have to note here, it's interesting. David is put in place over Judah by they, not him. And that really contrasts, as we'll see here in just a minute. Let me read verses 5 through 7, because here we now find David begins to kind of consolidate his reign. Uh, when they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Jabesh-Gilead is a little further up in the house of Israel, just to the, uh, just to the left side of the Jordan River. Up there, we had uh, met them back in uh, chapter one, or in uh, 1 Samuel 1. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, David sent messages to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant for Saul your Lord is dead and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David is already beginning in this to rightfully so consolidate his reign even though he is king over the southern kingdom in the, the house of Judah, he is actually uh, having interaction with some of those he knows up in the northern kingdom uh, as this is moving together. Let's go in now to verse 8. But Abner. But who? He's going to be a key person for the next few minutes. But Abner, the son of Ner, bless that guy's heart. Hey, Ner. <laughs> Commander, Abner is, commander of Saul's army. Remember, Saul is dead, but he was, you got to understand, Abner was the commander, like the four-star general of Saul's army. Huge position of power, authority. The king goes down. I mean, he's like right there. So Abner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, uh, uh, the son of Saul, 
brought him over to Mahanaim and he made him king over Gilead and Asherites and so forth and all Israel, the northern kingdom. Hey, by the way, did you just notice something right there? Who made him king? Not a community, not a plurality, but one dude. And there is a story in that whole thing as I've already alluded to. Abner puts puts Ishbosheth in the place of king because Saul has died over the northern kingdom, which, which, which makes sense in that day of it all. But I'm just going to tell you, I don't have time to get into it today. Abner is the puppeteer. Ishbosheth is, is the puppet. And Abner put him in place because Abner is, well, all about Abner. And if Abner could have put himself in place, he would have, as we'll essentially come and see. And Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. The seats are filled, and now the players make their move. Now the players make their move. There's something to learn out of these next, from here to the end of chapter 4. For us, there's two key things I'm working on today. One is about to come, one will come afterwards. So pay attention to what's happening here with the players making their move. I think there's four movements. I'm going to hit them one at a time. I'm not going to read them all. I'm just going to read a couple verses and, and summarize the majority of it. And three of them have to do with Abner, then one with uh, two other guys. Abner begins to fight his way in. Abner fights his way in. Here's the story. So Abner, who is Saul's cousin, as well as commander of Saul's army, by the way, who is also present, the text tells us back in 1 Samuel, he was present at David slaying Goliath. And he installs Ishbosheth that we just learned. So Abner then moves some soldiers from the northern kingdom to the city of Gibeon, just north of the southern border of uh, Judah. Uh, the intent is, is he's gathering a group, he's moving them down, he's going to go to war against Judah. By the way, there's already a picture here. God's people were never supposed to be like this. And they're warring against each other. So he is his forces, they meet up with, with a force of David's, not David isn't there, but with some of David's forces who are led by Joab, you would read, or Yoav. And they, they meet up with him. Uh, Yoav is David's nephew. These two forces, the text tells us, meet at the Pool of Gideon. Uh, the Pool of Gideon, actually, you can see it there. You, you can go and you can Google it and take a look at it. It's like 37 foot in diameter. It's like 80 foot deep. You can actually see where back in that day, they, they made stairs into it around the wall that kind of curl on down to it and, and it's a pool, a gathering so it's, it's a large kind of, might I say man expanded kind of man made pool these two forces, Abner's forces and, and, and Yoav's forces, they meet here at the pool of Gideon. In that uh, Abner proposes that what they do to do this war is that they pick 12 and Yoav pick 12 and those 12 fight each other and whoever wins that wins the battle. You and I are kind of in all of this when we see this kind of thing. We're like, what? Like, this looks, sounds like a cartoon. Uh, think, what happened with David and Goliath? The Philistines come. Israelites are there. 
They send out one man, you send out one man, and we'll settle the war that way. So this isn't in any kind of cartoon idea. This isn't some goofy, weird idea. This is actually uh, fitting with how they would at times do war. Okay, rather than all of us just charging and, ah, you know, doing that whole thing, let's take 12, you take 12, take your best, take our best. We'll have our best against your best, and whoever wins, wins the battle. That's as the text kind of explains what happens. So uh, while they're there uh, in that battle, then verse 17, chapter 2, and the battle was fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So Abner from the northern kingdom come down, they meet, and Abner loses. So what happens after your 12 guys are down on the ground? You run. And that's exactly what happened. And so three men from the southern kingdom, one of them, Yoav, the text tells us, and then Avishai, and then Asael. They are run after Abner, uh, who's running from the battle. Uh, Athel is the speedster of the group. He's the Olympian of the group. Verse 18, it says, he was swift on foot as a wild gazelle. I remember days like that. <laughs> if I even had that in those days. Not anymore. Uh, anyway, uh, Azael catches up with Abner to kill him. Abner does what Abner does. Abner tries to play a, a, a deal. Hey, don't do this. You really don't want to take out your vengeance on me. <laughs> and uh, uh, Asael refuses. So they go at it. And actually, Abner wins the battle. And he continues hightailing it out. Asael's lying dead. Yoav and Avishai and their men then catch up uh, to the gazelle who is now dead. Uh, then they catch up, they catch up eventually to Abner. Uh, uh, then Abner again says, let's, you don't need to do it this way. Um, uh, 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 let, let's appease this, let's settle this for now, let's just go home. Uh, clearly we see what's happened and actually Yoav agrees to that. He signals a ceasefire for the time being by blowing a ram's horn. And Abner returns home, minus 360 soldiers. The text tells us, and Yoav and his men return to Hebron. What's the point? Abner tries to fight his way into power and position and control, but he fails. Doug, why do you say that? Because watch what continues to happen. When an Abner fights his way in and doesn't get what he wants, what does he do? Well, he does a different approach. So number two, Abner tries to might his way in. Look at chapter three, verse one. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, the northern and southern tribes. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. We just have a summary picture here. Northern kingdom is getting weaker. The house of Judah is getting stronger. Um, side note, verses two through five tell about David that he has six sons and he now has six wives. Six. Trust me, we're going to talk about that another day. Verse six. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, David, Abner, was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Abner tries to might his way in. He tried to fight his way in, 
That didn't work. So now he's just trying to mite his way in. You see, that's what Abner does. Abner is about strengthening himself through himself for himself. And so he just keeps going at it. Then verses 7 through 11, there's this weird locker room concubine drama talk between Abner and Ishbosheth. It's just weird. They have a falling out. And Abner, verse 6, as we already read, tends to make himself strong. But the point eventually is that he fails. And that's what happens when you try to fight your way in, might your way in, when the Lord's not in it. So what does an Abner do next? Well, he tries to, well, pastor's got to make things rhymey. So he tries to slight his way in. Slight. It means deceitful craftiness. It means trickery deception. Let me put a picture. Um, it means the New England Patriots. <laughs> hey, now we're on. <laughs> now we got the definition. So what does Abner do? <laughs> he, he switches loyalties. He's like, it's not working up north for me. So I'm going to try and work it down south with David. So he literally defects to David in the house of Judah. Again, it just tells us about Abner. Abner isn't about anything else but Abner. And so Abner makes an agreement with David uh, to turn the rest of the tribes over to David because he was commander of the armies of Saul. And he's like, I can deliver you the northern tribe into your hand, David, thinking, hmm, a lot like the Amalekite, that David will bite with that. And in it, David's mind is in himself, for himself. It's all about it. Verse 12 of uh, chapter 3. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying to him, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me. Hmm, make your covenant with me. And behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good. David said, Good. I will make a covenant with you. A covenant. That's a commitment. That's a so let it be said, so let it be done. Covenant. And so David makes that covenant, and then we learn as the text moves along that Yoav shows up uh, and speaks to David, verses 24 to 25. Then Yoav uh, went to the king and said, uh, David, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Uh, why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know, David, that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. And Yoav knows that Abner's making a play here. And Yoav lets David know of that. And then the text continues on, and I want to note this interesting statement, verse 37. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put the, to death Abner the son of Ner. Wait, what happened? You see, Yoav learned that Abner is trying to con David. David had let Abner go with this covenant. Yoav, wrongfully, is like, I'm not putting up with that. He killed my brother. I'm taking him out. Yoav chases after Abner and kills him. David learns that Abner has killed, or I'm sorry, that Yoav has killed Abner. And David has the people lament 
over Abner's death, which is fascinating. David's awareness of God's timing and God's sovereign hand, he is so aware of it. And it is such a contrast to Abner, who's fighting his way in and mighting his way in and sliding his way in. And yet David is so sensitive and aware of God's sovereign timing in things that even when Abner dies, why? That people lament, why? Because Abner used to be Saul's commanding army leader. And Dave has this sense of things that God is even over governing officials and governing realities. Oh, hear that? And in it all, even Yoav wrongly killing Abner, we learn in verse 37 that God is essentially sovereignly protecting David from being accused of killing Saul's commander. Think about that. We had learned at the end of 1 Samuel that God and his sovereignty protected, moving into chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, that God was protecting David from being accused of killing King Saul to take authority. Now God is working sovereignly through a situation to take care of protecting David, that David wouldn't be accused of killing Saul's key commander. In other words, God is protecting David's name so that David would come Come into the king as kingdom, as, as king over the kingdom, and people would not be able to go. He fought his way there. He by might his way there. He slighted his way there. God is protecting David from any of that. Friends, that's what happens when God's people wait for God's timing. Fourth movement, Abner's tried to fight his way in and he's failed. He's tried to might his way in and he's failed. He's tried to slight his way in and he fails. And now Abner is dead. And then there are two Abner-like brothers who come up on the scene. Banah and Reshav try to Amalekite their way in. I'm going to call them Bara. I understand. It's like, it sounds like a Lady Gaga song. Wait, he listened to a Lady Gaga song? Yeah, okay. That's all online now, too. So chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we learn that the people in the northern house are discouraged. They're dismayed. They're dismayed because Abner is dead. And uh, then we see this sensitive thing. They're in a sensitive place. And then all of a sudden, these two brothers, Ba and Ra, they show up on the scene. Hey, do you remember that Amalekite guy in chapter 1? I already made reference to him, just again a reminder. He was there around the time of Saul's death. Saul had died. We learned Saul fell on his own spear uh, in battle. Uh, he happened to be there, pick up Saul's crown, pick up the armlet, come back to David, try and scam a story to get himself in, thinking that David would think like him. That's what happens with Ba and Ra. They end up, doing this story. Verse 7, chapter 4. When they, and we just learned before that they're creeps, not good guys. Verse 7, when they came into the house, as he, as Ishbosheth, the king of the 
northern house, lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. That's what these two Ba'an Ra did. They took his head. They went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth, the David at Hebron. Man, this is so like the Amalekite. And they, Ba'an Ra, said to David, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. Oh, this is so like the Amalekite. And how ironic it is, two individuals who really have no respect for the Lord, are not in any way that we see living for the Lord, are then the ones who declare what the Lord has done. Hey, here's what's going on. They're pulling in a whole other Amalekite story. We have one more story of of guys trying to uh, work their way into position. Verse 9, but David said to Aranbah, his brother, the sons of uh, Ramon, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Come back to that here in a bit. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and kid, killed him in Ziklag. David is making reference to the Amalekite in chapter one, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed him. Doug, that's a lot of drama. That's a lot of 3,000 year ago drama. What does it have to do with us? I've already been trying to put some things in our head how it relates to us, but let me maybe narrow in two things from here. The seats get filled. Players make their plays. Abner tries to fight his way in, then might his way in, then slight his way in, and every attempt fails. And then Ba and Ra, they try and Amalekite their way in, and it's failure. And there's something to observe about these three guys, and there's a question to ask. Why did they do what they did? Why did they do what they did? Answer. They did what they did because they thought what they thought. And they thought what they thought because they wanted what they wanted. Why did they do it? Because they did what they did because of what they thought. And they thought what they were thinking about because of what they wanted. Question. The last week, What have you wanted? I mean, for real. What has been the heart want of you this last week? What has been that thing that you want so bad that you think about it again and again and again and you just dwell on it? Oh, and then it's out of your thinking comes then the doing, because I want it so bad that for Abner, Ra, and Ba, they're willing to sin to get it. 
What have you been wanting? If you're having a hard time thinking, well, I got to think about that. I don't know what I wanted. Then look at what you've been doing. Look at what you've been doing. Look at the fruit on the tree. And then track it back down to the root of what's going on. And friend, if you spend time legitimately thinking it through, you will be able to learn what you have been wanting. And it is out of this that where real change happens. Because we are not aware enough of what we are wanting. We just do, but it is an engineered track back. You do what you do because you want what, because you think what you think. And you think what you think because you want what you want. Well, I want control. I want power. I want my way. And I fear not having it. So I'll raise Hades in my home to get it because I want control. I want respect. I want love. I want attention. So I'll do what I have to do to get it. So I'll demand it because that's what I want. I want to feel happy, and I want to be healthy. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. There's nothing even wrong with wanting to seek control. There's nothing wrong with respect. There's nothing wrong with love. You see, but when it gets to the place where, no, I want happiness, and, happiness, and I demand health, and therefore, I am going to do everything I have to do to get that. Now we have jumped into, well, biblically, sin. I want money. I just know I want what I don't have. I just know I want more. So I'm going to do what I have to do to get it. And if that means I lose time with my family, I want it more. If that means I steal it, I'll do it. If that means I have to kill to get position in the kingdom, I will. I just want to escape the pain of life. I just want to escape life. I understand that. And so I'll do drugs. And so I'll do drunk. And so I'll do porn. And so I'll do party life to escape it. These three men, if we are willing to take the moments to consider what's going on in them, you ask the question, why are they doing what they're doing? Because, by the way, it failed and it failed and it failed and it failed. And we can learn from them because, friends, they are not far from you and me.
And then let me finish with this. The real story is about God at work. The real story in all of the stories about God at work. David in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 9, he says, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Uh, something very important in that. David is not saying, God has removed every adversity from my life. Hear me, friend. He is not saying that. He is saying that in the adversity of life, God has every time done a redeeming work. There has been a redemptive work of God in every adversity allowed sovereignly by God in my life. And as he traces all the way back, he goes, God did a redeeming work there, and God did a redeeming work there, and God did a redeeming work there, and on, and on, and on. And so he can, at this point of time, at nearly 30 years old, he can make the declaration that as I look back at every adversity that God has allowed in my life, God has redeemed my life out of it. I'm telling you that is an altogether different way of thinking. I just want to get out of pain. You too? And David is making this declaration of, no, no, no. I, I, we, 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 we should want and think about, and it should change our behavior in adversity, when we want God to do a redeeming work in this adversity. In me, through me, out of me. And that's what David is declaring here. And what he is really doing is he is pointing everything to God. The story isn't about David. The story is about God. And God God covenanted himself to this little dude, stinking like sheep. And God, God, God was faithful to him all the way through. And David failed and failed and failed, but God covenanted himself Hey, if you have had like a really rough week, a really rough month, a really rough year, let's just say being faithful to the Lord, if you know Christ, you aren't held in Christ by you. You are held in Christ by him. Prove it, Doug. We'll do, and we'll finish with this. Turn to John 10. John 10. Jesus is talking about sheep. Boy, they got that in that day. Sheep and shepherds. And Jesus, John chapter 10, uh, just last couple minutes, verse 9. Jesus says, uh, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he, she will be saved and will go in and, and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the, the declaration of Jesus. Uh, listen, 
my burden is light. And then he says in verse 27 and 28 and 29, he says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Look at this. I give them eternal life. No, no, no. It doesn't say they earned it. I, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Oh, and if that's not good enough, verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Hey, if there's been a time in your life where you've driven the stake in the ground and come to understand that you are a sinner separated from God, and it's not by going to church, it's not just by saying dinner prayers, but come to the realization that you are separated from God because of your sin, and you have received Christ as your Savior, it is at that point that the entire Trinity gets involved in you, and the Spirit of God indwells you And the son of God wraps his hand around you and the father wraps his hand around that. And you and I are in there going, "Ah!" (laughs) like little brats. And it's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Bigger than you. I am not saved by me. I am saved by God doing a work. Yeah, but Doug, I prayed and received Christ as my Savior. Listen, friends, God moved that in you. And if you don't know what it is to be redeemed in Christ, oh, you are missing out. Because the person, when they come to Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. And so, Lord, I just ask, if there's anyone in this room who is at a place right now where they're not sure, I ask even right now, this moment, that they would declare to you that they don't know that they know that they know. And they would understand that it is not by their might, it is not by their fight, it is not by their slight, It is not by their pulling an Amalekite to earn their way into heaven. It is about your story on the cross, doing a work made available and receiving that by grace through faith in Christ alone. God, I pray if they are at that place, they do that now and then they would tell someone right afterwards come and ask. We'd love to help you. And for those who are in Christ, may today you walk out of here knowing this. You're held by a covenanting God. And when he says it's done, it's done. And in this crazy whacked out world, oh God, we hold on to you because you hold on to us. In Christ's name we pray.